Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Dobry večer and welcome to the Bohemian Podcast with Piet Coleman and Travis Stone. Hello and welcome to the Bohemian Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Coleman, live from the very cold field here on December 2nd, 2018, uh, at the battle reenactment of Austerlitz, the battle of the three emperors between Napoleon and the Russians and the uh, Austrians, the Grand Army of, of France, taking the field and winning the day, of course. They are finishing this battle here, and we uh, will bring you some great pictures and stories about this very interesting battle fought here on Czech soil. Uh, at the beginning of the 19th century. Of course, Napoleon winning in this battle. And uh, there are a thousand or so spectators uh, taking a part in this huge field. You can hear the cannons behind me. There are about a thousand or so, 1,100 uh, reenactors from around 15 countries in Europe uh, that took, play, took part in this uh, battle. To give an idea about the, the sheer scope of this, there's a grandstand of about 600 people or so right behind me. And the cavalry is now coming closer to me right now, so we'll take a break here and give you an idea about what this battle is all about. For more on this battle and the influence of Napoleon on the uh, area of Central Europe, let's go to Travis Dow. All right. Thanks, Pete. So the the whole background, like the whole setup and or strategy of the battle kind of gives us a good glimpse of like Napoleon's like genius on the battlefield in general. And to take a step back and look at Napoleon at this time, so his rise to power in post-revolutionary France was just meteoric, and his military conquests were basically unparalleled for his day. It was just uh, incredible what he was doing in, in one regard. It was just shocking news. And it was said that the Grand Army of France was pushing forward like the would-be reforms of liberty, equality, and fraternity, I use if I'm if I'm arguing in Napoleon's favor. I always mention like, hey, he really liberated the Jews and set um, like Jewish reform in in Germany and and um, um, really liberated them at the time, like in Prussia and all that. So the flip side of that is that this was also clearly an, a power grab. Like, let's not kid ourselves about Napoleon. Napoleon was power hungry in a in a way of just like yeah like kind of wanted to rule the world so to understand where the battle of austerlitz comes into play is like as one of the more uh, important battles of the napoleonic era we first need to kind of look at this point in 1805 their french refocused 
their war aims away from invading Britain and towards like the continent, taking on European powers of Austria and like even Russia. And in this case, in what's known as the Ulm maneuver, I believe, um, he swung around to the rear of the Austrian forces. 23,000 Austrian troops surrendered at Ulm, giving him a total, uh, like prisoner of war total of 60,000. Austrian troops and the Russians weren't being of much help. All right. So the Russians first withdrew to like the Northeast and they were waiting for Austrian reinforcements to show up, but Napoleon did not wait. <laughs> the French emperor decided to set a psychological trap in order to lure the allies out. And this is kind of where Austerlitz fits in. This is actually, this is crazy. Like Napoleon's little mind games, his, his like ability to understand, like read the minds of his, of the, the opposing generals, which that's like one of the things we love to talk about or um, kind of, you know, one of the things we repeat often over and over in these kind of podcasts about battles is, is the greater, the general that can understand his opponent the best. Yeah. So, so he kind of knew, so, I'll, so there's, there's several ways, there's several ways that he could read the Austrian general's mind. But first, he started with just like making his army seem tired. So he just kind of um, as if his army was about to give up and they were about to sue for peace. Days before any fighting, Napoleon was kind of doing this like facade of tired army. Maybe we should negotiate peace. Maybe they've come as, you know, Ulm, like which is the border of Bavaria. Maybe Bavaria is as far as they want to go. Um, there was about 53,000 French troops. They were all assigned to take the Austerlitz and Olmutz roads as a diversion, literally, like so the Austrians would be looking that way. And meanwhile, Austria and Russia now numbering 89,000 together, which so almost double the number, not quite, but almost two to one. It seemed far superior. The, they thought the French army was tired, uh, not to mention outnumbered. But right over the horizon... Three further French generals, uh, Barnadotte, Mottier, and Devote, were waiting with reinforcements, which could be marched from like Iglau and Vienna, and that would raise the total number of French troops to 75,000. So effectively, they they did have 75,000 troops, not tired, fresh, to um, Austria and Russians, 89,000. So totally well-matched. And that's not the end of the story. So... There's a couple more things. First of all, he sent uh, General Savari to the Allied headquarters in Olomouc to uh, kind of deliver the message of maybe they were thinking about peace. Um, was there any way to avoid battle? That kind of negotiation. So not like not like saying, oh, let's sign a ceasefire. But yeah, um, while he was there, he could also take an eye, <laughs> kind of look around and, and act as a spy and check out the, uh, the Allied forces whole situation. And so this was taken as a sign of weakness by the Austrians and Russians that they sent this general in the first place. And when uh, Francis I offered an armistice, uh, Napoleon accepted enthusiastically. And then he also, on the same day, cr uh, ordered his forces to abandon the high places. So Austerlitz, the town of Austerlitz and the Pratzen Heights, and not only um, like retreat from those the high ground, but also do so chaotically. Um, so that this was just like, it would really be tempting for the enemy to just, you know, occupy those heights. Okay. So why does he want Austria and Russia to occupy the high ground? You know, if he's, if he's feigning peace and going to actually have a battle, um, 
first of all, the Protzen Heights is kind of a historic place. If To our loyal listeners, you might know this is the place where uh, the Battle of the Three Emperors was fought. In any case, so th- I mean, it is a strategic sort of sort of place for a battle. Like it is the high grounds with a nice vantage point. This is kind of like military, you know, strategy 101. Okay, now, so Napoleon completely let the Russians have it. And they, they fell for it and they, they went for it. So on December 1st, 1805, the battle preparation was put to the test. Now, Napoleon was hoping that the Allied forces would attack. And he even kind of like weakened his right flank so to, to, you know, make this more appealing. And this whole time, the generals were not as sure as Napoleon was. Um, they were kind of whispering in his ear to to actually retreat and kind of take this, the, the offer of an armistice. Napoleon would have none of it. In fact, Napoleon wanted his right flank to become encircled so that um, because there was strategic value there, that would cut the French communication line from Vienna. But that would actually be in Napoleon's favor because then the allies, like the Austrian and Russians, left flank and center would be very exposed and just kind of vulnerable to French attack. So Napoleon envisioned this and wanted them to do this. So that's why he abandoned Protzen Heights, uh, faked all this weakness, and meanwhile, uh, unbeknownst to the Russians, his Napoleon's main force was right around uh, the heights on the other side. So the plan was to quickly recapture the heights, and then from the heights, they would launch a decisive assault to the center of the Allied army. So does that make sense? So now the Russians are basically wiped out. Their left and center, their their center and their left flank is swiping way around uh, the French right flank to cut off the communication lines from Vienna, okay? And so Napoleon just swipes in right down the middle um, and yeah, he wins. So this is, now this is this is his plan, okay? This is his vision. This isn't the actual battle, but this was his mind. So there's a quote from him that says, if the Russian forces leave the Protzen Heights in order to go to the right side, they will certainly be defeated. So this, it was just, he set this like, uh, trap uh, on two sides in the battle, but on like four sides in the preparation, sending the general, um, having the the uh, troops disorderly, uh, you know, chaotically retreat, and um, yeah, and then and then leaving the high ground available, both Austerlitz, the town, and and Protzen Heights, just to spread out um, the the allies as much as possible. Okay, so the battle itself. Pete, what actually what actually did happen? How how successful was this? Well, Trav, the battle that Napoleon wanted to help cement his power over the Third Alliance was right at hand, and almost to the day a year earlier that he was granted supreme power over the French. On December 2nd, 1805, the battle began around 8 a.m. with the first Allied lines attacking the village of Telnitz, which is just a mere few miles east of the city of Bruno in modern-day Czech Republic. At about 8.45 a.m., satisfied with the weakness in the enemy center, Napoleon asked one of his generals how long it would take for his men to reach the Pratzen Heights, to which he replied, less than 20 minutes, sire. About 15 minutes later, Napoleon ordered the attack, adding, one sharp blow and the war is over. A dense fog, that's not very uncommon for this time of year in South Moravia, helped to cloud the advance of St. Hilaire's French division. But as they went up the slope, the legendary son of Austerlitz, quote-unquote, ripped the mist apart and encouraged them to move forward. Russian soldiers and commanders on top of the heights were stunned to see so many French soldiers coming towards them. 
the Russians had just run down the other side of the heights towards the weakest part of the French line, hoping to circle half around and envelop Napoleon. But that's what Napoleon wanted all along. With Napoleon charging up one side of the heights, the exposed Russians had run down the other side towards the weakened French lines, only to be hit by their flank by the late but much appreciated French Third Corps of Davout. Badass for sure, he engaged with troops that marched 70 miles in two days, but yet were still ready to fight. Allied commanders moved some of their delayed detachments of the fourth column into the bitter struggle. Over an hour of fighting destroyed much of this unit. The other men from the second column, mostly inexperienced Austrians, swung the numbers against one of the best fighting forces in the French army, eventually forcing them to withdraw down the slope. Now, here are the numbers that they get kind of heavy when you talk about this Battle of Austerlitz. Uh, there's a lot of participants here, right? Allied casualties stood at about 36,000 out of an army of 89,000, which represented about 38% of their effective forces. The French lost around 9,000 out of an army of 66,000, so only about 13% loss of their forces. So you can definitely see that the French were coming out ahead in this battle. The Allies also lost some 180 guns and about 50 standards, war trophies, I guess, basically, to later be paraded through Paris. So you can see Napoleon, with a much smaller force attacking a much larger force, was able to get them to bite on his trap to attack the weak flank coming down the Pratzen Heights. Because, listen, the Russians thought they had it all figured out. They got they had the high ground of Pratzen Heights. They have a weak, a weakened division, French line. They're going to attack them and they hope to envelop. But they didn't see the other Davos Corps coming in from the West. And uh, that was their, spelled their doom. And before you knew it, uh, all these losses occurred and uh, the Austrians were basically done. Uh, the Russians with a bloody nose for sure. This great victory is met by sheer amazement and delirium in Paris, as you can imagine, where just a few days earlier the nation had been teetering on the brink of financial collapse this kind of soothed their, their concerns and, and, and worries. Napoleon had written uh, on, at the very end of this day to Josephine, quote, unquote, I have beaten the Austro-Russian army commanded by two emperors. I am very weary, <laughs> unquote. Napoleon's comments in this letter led to the battle's other designation, known as the Battle of the Three Emperors. However, Emperor Francis of Austria was not present on the battlefield, and Tsar Alexander perhaps had summed this up quite nicely by saying, we are babies in the hands of a giant. After hearing the news of Austerlitz, Britain's William Pitt referred to the map of Europe and said, reportedly said this, roll up that damn map. It will not be wanted these 10 years. You can imagine a little sour grapes there. But you know, hold on, this, this isn't over. The Napoleonic War is not going to be finished quite yet. Napoleon had a huge success here. But let's look at what, what the immediate ramifications were heading into the very end of 1805, going into 1806. France and Austria signed a truce on the 4th of December, and the Treaty of Pressburg, 22 days later, took the Austrians out of the war. Austria agreed to recognize French territory that was captured, and it would be up to the British, the Russians, and hopefully the Prussians, if they can get the Prussians into the war to help stop Napoleon's conquest of Europe, that's going to be seen later in, in this war. But at this point, the French are flying high, and Napoleon is the toast of Paris. Now, Travis, getting a chance to be out in the elements and see these uh, reenactors, you get a, a great appreciation for the dedication. Uh, the, some of these 
folks came in from 15 different countries. One from, from the United States came in, uh, many from, of course, across Europe, especially the, the nations that were at war during the Battle of Austerlitz in the Napoleonic era. Uh, they were well represented with, with France and Austria and Russia and the Ukraine. Uh, there were just so many of them there. Um, I believe the last stat I read, there was 1,100 uh, combatants on this field uh, during this reenactment. So it was all very much staged. But one thing that was different from other reenactments that I've attended this year in Czech Republic was the fact that the spectators were pretty far from the action. Um, we all were lined up on the perimeter of this entire battlefield. And I, I, there must have been over a 1,000 people altogether. I guess if you're in Moravia this weekend, that was the place to be out in a frozen field someplace. It was well worth it. it I think because of the pyrotechnics, the, the cannons, and of course, the many, many horses that they had. I believe they had over 200 horses involved that if one were to get away and go into the crowd, that'd be, of course, very dangerous. So most of us were kind of removed from that. That being said, one horse actually did get away and uh, it was captured um, and brought to brought to calmness a little bit later. I think it was a, it was a younger horse, so um, I think the uh, the battlefield sounds were a little too much for her. So um, that was interesting to see that. But these guys, you know, will do saber fighting on top of their horses uh, and come pretty close with blows with their swords. Mostly, this battle was about lining up and precision of the armies and the way they did it in the early 19th century, which was basically lining up in file, marching, setting up, having your uh, rifle primed and firing in unison, and then retiring to the next line and so forth and so on. So that was interesting to see too from, from my distance. I was kind of tucked away actually in the back, uh, in the corner of the field where the uh, Russians and the Austrians um, had their quote unquote generals on top of their horses surveying the area. So I was kind of close to that side, not so much the French side. Um, and this particular battle, they decided that they were going to uh, put emphasis on the Austrians and the Russians and their attack. So uh, the counterattack of the, of, the, of the Napoleonic forces of the French were on display for all of us to see. Now you can hear, like when I'm on the field, you'll actually hear uh, a loudspeaker. And it, this happens in most of these Czech um, uh, reenactments that you'll have somebody on a loudspeaker giving the historical background as the battle is going on. I find it a little cumbersome, one, that I don't understand Czech, so in that sense, <laughs> that uh, it's, it, it's just noise for me. And I'd rather hear the noise of the battle alone. For those that can understand the language, it was a probably good footnote of history that they could hear what was going on and what the, the movement of these reenactors were. So Travis is so much more than cosplay. These guys not only dress the part, but they also stay in character and they have to know the history and they have to know the movements. It all is uh, very much a very intricate dance when it comes to reenactment. Now, this is so cool. I didn't get to see this battle, but obviously we were in Pilsen together and saw tons of reenactors and we've seen other uh, Napoleonic era or or Prussian like Bismarck era battles uh, together on on Czech field somewhere in the landscape. Um, and one thing to really point out is just the reenactors. So we've talked about this before um, in, in Pilsen, like there was people from Russia, Germany, uh, Slovakia, they they come together and then they reenact more than just the battles. They don't stay at the local Best Western or whatever the Czech version is. Um, they show up in tents and they sleep in tents and they march like soldiers. So this is this is really something um, kind of interesting in and of itself. I mean, I just have a huge respect for the hobby, I would say, 
um, because it really does educate and and just enthrall. And there's you know all the way from like medieval reenactors, that's a huge thing in the Czech Republic, to Napoleonic to World War II and and so forth. Um, I think it's fascinating. And uh, safety is a huge thing. Your your photos are fantastic. It really does. I mean, muskets are going off and guns are going off, and um, it's it's yeah, really something something to see. And they basically do this um, every year in Moravia, every second of December, snow or not. Yeah, and these I mean, they put all in. They they you can't just walk to a costume shop and say I'd like a Napoleonic, you know, the Austrian uniform. Like they they tailor them themselves, or they know people, or. Um, they own their own uniforms. It is a a labor of love, a a passion hobby, like we all understand here in the podcasting community. Um, but they go all out. They train. They are they are history nerds, like we can only dream of in their in their military history and where they all stood on the field. And you know they're 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 often they're a single position. They're they're forming a unit, and so they have to know like the makeup of the Austrian army or the Napoleonic army at least roughly. You know, kind of know where to stand, um, and time the whole thing. And 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 it's just it's. It's it's a reenact. I mean, a reenactment is a play. It's just a, it really does um, take some 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 skill, I think. And I'm sure they all have a lot of fun, or they wouldn't be doing it. I'm 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 glad you got to see this one, and and uh, I bet it was. I mean, yeah, your your pictures are fantastic. What, did you learn anything new about the uh, reenactors, or did you get a chance to talk to them and such? Yeah, Trump. Actually, when I go to these places, uh, you're exactly right. I take a lot of photographs, and yeah, they're they're fantastic. Um, in position, uh, I use a, a pretty good uh, telephoto lens so I can get pretty close to the action, even though I'm far away. And uh, if I can keep still and <laughs> be able to kind of get the great shot that I want with the great lighting, uh, then uh, yeah, I can come away with some really interesting shots. Uh, you'll see that uh, on the YouTube video that we're putting together for this, either for the past access show or for Behemoth. And I'm not too quite sure exactly what we're going to use it for yet, uh, but you'll be able to see the video of this and we'll make an announcement at, at another time. It was nice to have my son there with me and uh, helping me push through the snow a little bit uh, in the fields in, in, near Austerlitz. And um, we got to see uh, a little bit of the reenactors up close and personal, and they were all very kind. Uh, we talked to one person speaking uh, German, and he was, uh, I guess, pretending to be with the, with the Austrians and uh, the Russians. And uh, they were great to show us their sabers, their cavalry sabers, and, and uh, let us try on some of their uniform. That was kind of nice to see that. So um, I think it's, it's a very close-knit fraternity, and there are, I'm going to say fraternity, there are also women that uh, participate in these, in these actions. Um, you know, there, there were some women fighting in some of these battles in the Napoleonic era. Most of them probably were um, uh, in the sense of uh, support and support roles in the encampment. You will have a lot of them that are dressing up as women of the army to uh, either in real life they were they were wives and girlfriends or courtesans, <laughs> if you will, uh, that travel with the army to keep them fed and uh, uh, to help their beloveds to prepare for the battle. Uh, that really did happen. And some of these women actually are in those period clothing and, and are part of the aspect of the, of the preparation of the battle. Uh, others were um, on horseback or pretended to look like men to, to fight. And historically, that, there might be a case for that in some occasions. But um, they do not discriminate um, by sex. That They're able to, um, if you're able to ride and able to have the historical background that you want, you can participate. Uh, you might have to look like a man to do so, uh, to fit into the period um, of, of the historical battle. But uh, I believe that it's a very open thing to do. And, and these guys and gals are basically very 
these guys and gals are, are close-knit group. They see each other, I'm sure, on, on the circuit throughout the course of several years. And uh, I'm sure it's a very tight-knit fraternity. Before we wrap up the show, just a quick reminder that our Curious Check Christmas book is out on Amazon. It's been out for a couple Christmases now. And if you get a, a chance to take a look at that book, um, you'll see there's a lot of Czech Christmas traditions that leading up through Advent, going into the Christmas Eve, and of course, into New Year's. There's a lot of things that are probably unfamiliar to some of our listeners that have not lived here in Czech Republic to to get acquainted to the interesting sort of Czech traditions during the Christmas season. And uh, it really is something that I think if, if you're interested in, uh, y'all, I'm sure you'll love to pick up this book on Amazon. And you can do so either online or have the hard copy sent to you. It's really a soft cover. And uh, get a chance to see what Travis and I put together. We also have some recipes in there. So take a look if you're interested because it's a great way to help out the Bohemian Podcast. So the battle here at Austerlitz. About six miles southeast of uh, Renault in the Czech capital of Moravia, uh, the facto capital of Moravia. This battle is uh, actually very much what it probably looked like, a little snowy, very cold. Uh, it took place on December 2nd. We're here on December 1st, 2018, but on December 2nd, 1805, this battle waged against the three emperors. As we finish our podcast here today on the Bohemian Podcast, uh, we want to thank you all for tuning in throughout the years. Uh, taking, taking part in some of the things we see here, uh, some of the great historical events, some of the cultural events that make the Czech Republic home for a lot of people, especially us uh, foreign expats that come in to make Czechia our home, de facto home, I guess. So if you can, make sure you go to the Bohemian.com website and get more information about some of my exploits here and some of our stories between Travis and I over the past few years. Until next time, I'm Pete Coleman for the Bohemian Podcast. You have been listening to the Bohemian Podcast with Pete Coleman and Travis Dawn. Hey, Trav, did you know Christmas is coming up? Wow, Pete, is that true? It sure is, and you know what would make the perfect stocking stuffer? I do. The Curious Czech Christmas Book from the Bohemian Podcast. Our book really puts you in the Christmas mood, especially for our listeners feeling a bit homesick for the Czech Republic this holiday season. Curious Czech Christmas is full of illustrations, Czech Christmas legends, traditions, and even your favorite Czech Christmas recipes. You can help out the Bohemian Podcast by stopping by Amazon and picking up a Curious Czech Christmas today. Remember, you can order the English version from Amazon Marketplace worldwide. Merry Christmas, Trav. Veselé Vanoce, Pete.